So it's safe to say that almost everyone has had the experience of not getting along with someone at work or at school or really anywhere else. It also often feels like the kind of problem that can't be fixed. Like the source of the problem is something core to you and that other person. And the thing is, if someone ever asks you why you feel that way, or if you go and ask someone else, the polite versions of those answers sound something like, we just really see things differently, or we're just not a good match, or our personalities really clash. But should we really point to personality in these cases? Does personality even make that much of a difference? Can it make your work life terrible when there's a mismatch and make it productive, pleasant, and rewarding when things line up just right? I'm Nicholas Bremner. I'm Jose Espinoza. And you're listening to Mind Your Work, a podcast about social science and work and what happens when you put these things together. Today, we're going to be talking about personality in the workplace. But even though this is a term that's really well known to pretty much everyone, we all use this word in our our daily language. What do we actually mean when we say personality? So there's kind of a layman definition and there's a more of a research-based definition. The layman definition is basically personality is someone's character. When someone is loud or outgoing, we might even say they have a lot of personality. It kind of describes who they are in general, whereas researchers have to define things very, very closely. And so the American Psychological Association defines personality as the individual differences in characteristic patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving. This is kind of a difficult definition to digest because it really talks about a characteristic or a set of traits that define us so broadly, it's almost difficult to narrow down. It's really kind of the essence or the the core of who we are as a person, and how we face outwardly to the society around us. Yeah, and we don't really want to dismiss the layman's definition of personality, the notion of character and having a lot of personality and and what that means to us. But the reason why we want to make sure you understand when we talk about the researcher's definition of personality is because that's what the research is based on. So we want to kind of couch everything we say so we're all speaking the same language. So thinking about this researcher definition of personality, um, we're talking about thinking, we're talking about feeling, we're talking about behaving. This covers absolutely every behavior you can think of. Uh, This is a really broad definition. And so when personality research started out, researchers were focusing on all these different behaviors and they, in order to research it, they had to categorize them and simplify it so we could really understand what we're talking about. And so... I believe it was back in the 1940s, we were finally able to distill personality down into five main traits. And the easiest way to remember it was with the acronym OCEAN. So there's five of them. The first is openness to experience. The next is conscientiousness, followed by extroversion, which we're all pretty familiar with, the opposite being introversion, then agreeableness, and then neuroticism. So this is not the only model of personality There are other models, both by essentially researchers with other ideas of how this might work. And there are also other models by popular companies that are selling their own models of personality. So you might've heard things like color, um, you might be a blue type, you might be red, you might be yellow, or you might've heard of something like the Myers-Briggs type inventory. But we're going to focus on the big five or the OCEAN acronym that Nick was talking about 
because it's the one that's kind of most widely accepted by researchers and the one that has the most scientific evidence backing it up. A lot of momentum has gone behind this big five model of personality and it's been expanded too. And there are more granular level traits, but this is kind of the best way of describing and thinking about personality that researchers have come up with to date. And I know people would argue with me on that, but for the purpose of the podcast and describing people, I think this is a pretty straightforward approach. So I think the next thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about each of those parts of the acronym of the OCEAN acronym and tell you a little bit about what those traits actually mean. So first up, we have conscientiousness. Conscientiousness is a trait that's about being task-focused and being orderly in contrast to being distracted and disorganized. Agreeableness is a pretty self-explanatory thing. It's basically agreeable people are cooperative and polite rather than being antagonistic and rude or confrontational. I'm a very agreeable person because I don't necessarily like conflict and I will try and, you know, see other people's perspectives and potentially change my opinion, at least on the surface, to promote harmony within a group. So next we have probably, I think the most controversial of all of the aspects of the big five, and that's neuroticism. Sometimes we also call it emotional stability if it's worded as its polar opposite. So essentially people who are neurotic tend to experience lots of negative emotions. They're likely to be irritated easily. They're anxious. And they're often the kind of people who are always on the edge of swinging back and forth between different emotions. Next up, we've got openness to experience, which is, I guess, a lesser known one. And it's kind of fun to describe. So someone who's open to experience has a really broad rather than narrow range of interests. Um, they might be more sensitive to art and beauty, uh, appreciate it for its own sake, and prefer novelty over routine. So for the last trait, and the one that I think we're all familiar with, it's extroversion. Basically, we all know extroverted individuals in our lives. They're assertive, they're social. At the party, they roam from one person to the next. They always seem to fit in every group. In the contrast to that, we have people who are introverted, people who are quiet and reserved, people who are more likely to not seek out social interaction. It doesn't mean that they don't enjoy social interaction, but they're less likely to seek it out than someone with a lot of personality. And I think really that's the person who we're referring to when we say that, someone who's extroverted. I think this trait deserves a little bit more discussion because it's one of the most popular, but I also think one of the most misunderstood traits of personality. I think that Western society has a real affinity towards extroversion. They really appreciate it. People who are outgoing in the life of the party are really kind of put up on a pedestal. Whereas introverts have this, um, this stereotype associated with them of being quite shy, quiet, and just socially awkward. But I think it's important to emphasize that there are introverts who can be the life of, of the party and who can be quite gregarious and outgoing, but they have to turn it on. One other thing I want to dispel is that people who are introverted are somehow inherently more intelligent or creative or sensitive or more in tune with kind of the special bits of human nature than extroverted people. Um, you hear this happen in conversation a lot. I think you see it in the media a lot. Introversion and extroversion are not really talking about anything other than the notion of being social, the notion of seeking out interaction. So as we talked about based on that definition from the American Psychological Association, personality 
should affect every part of our lives. But we want to focus on this podcast on exactly how it affects how we work. So we want to cover a few things about personality and what the research says about that. We want to talk about your performance at work. We want to talk about what it's like to work in a team when it comes to your personality. And we want to discuss a little bit about your career and exactly what do we look for in certain jobs. So probably first up on the plate is talking about individual performance at work and how does personality relate to that. And basically the gist of the research suggests that if you're conscientious and the more conscientious you are, the better you perform. And this seems to hold pretty well across different jobs and across different types of tasks. Now, I read something recently actually on the APA website, and it didn't link me to the actual reference, which is unfortunate. But what they were saying is that there's actually some debate about whether or not conscientiousness is related to job performance. I found this strange because we were raised as little Iowa psychologists to believe that conscientiousness was the most important predictor of job performance for pretty much any role. What this article was saying is that there are some occupations, um, more artistic occupations that require creativity and kind of more free thinking, where conscientiousness is actually a hindrance to performance because it could inhibit creative thought. What do you think about that? I got to say, I wasn't aware of that. But do you think that's because we don't do a lot of research in these kind of creative paths? We don't have a lot of research studying artists and studying musicians and other people who are highly creative, maybe like architects. Do you think that's maybe why we've been missing this part of the puzzle? We definitely spend way too much time researching psychology students. Um, Most of psychological research and the results that we have are based on undergraduate psychology students because they're the easiest to access. That could be part of it. Um, And then, yeah, absolutely. A lot of data is collected in organizations in more traditional industries like hospitals, uh, like banks, like manufacturing positions where conscientiousness would most certainly be important for job performance. So I think that's potentially true, yeah. Yeah, I I think that's interesting. It brings maybe a new context to conscientiousness, the notion that really maybe it is a detriment sometimes. So maybe the research just says that conscientiousness is the one that matters for individual performance. All of the other traits don't seem to be backed up that well particularly agreeableness. It seems to show that whether you're agreeable or not really has no impact on how well you perform. However, the research does suggest that when it comes to working in a team, which is what we want to talk about next, is that agreeableness, well, maybe does play a role there. Researching personality in a team setting is actually really complex. And I think explaining it is going to be complex too, but we'll try our best here. So when researchers look at the dynamics of personality in groups, They look at the overall average of a given trait in that group. So looking at the average of, let's say, agreeableness in a team overall. They also look at how much personalities of group members differ. So if you have uh, one group member who's highly agreeable and conscientious, and you have another group member who's the polar opposite, how do those two individuals work together? And they also look at who has the highest and lowest levels of a given trait in a group. So if a group is full of completely agreeable people um, and the maximum level of agreeableness is, let's say, five out of five, they'll look at that and see how that predicts performance or what we call team cohesion, um, which is how people get along and how they work together to achieve a common goal. So now that we're talking about different kinds of ways to work as a team, this is probably a good time to bring up the different kinds of tasks. So teams researchers have 
divided up tasks and how, and how teams can work together into different types. So the first type is called additive or an additive task. And this is really when the final product is a function of all of the members' inputs if you add them up directly. And a good example of this is if you have a car, let's say, stuck in the mud, one person trying to push it out may be a bit of a challenge. But as you add more people, their efforts directly combine to move the car out of the mud faster. The second type of task performance or, or task type is called conjunctive. And this is when team performance really depends on the least productive member. So if you think of climbing a mountain, you're only going to move as fast as the slowest member of your group, provided that the other hikers are kind, considerate people and are waiting for the slowest member. I've had hikes where that was not the case and the rest of the hikers just moved on without me. <laughs> <laughs> and then in, in the case of a factory production line, if you have 10 different people putting 10 different parts of a product together, the least productive member uh, is going to slow down the line and slow down production. And the last type of task is called a disjunctive task. And this is where team performance depends on the most productive member of the group. A good example of this is like a brainstorming session where you have a group of people trying to come up with a new idea and you really only need one good idea. Having a group of people increases your chances of coming up with a good solution, but if one person comes up with, let's say, the best solution right off the bat, you only need that one idea. Nicholas's point on the notion of disjunctive versus conjunctive and additive tasks brings up probably one of the most interesting findings I think we can get in terms of personality and teams. And that's that conscientiousness is really important for performance in teams overall, just like how it is in individual performance. But in some cases, having at least one person who is really not conscientious, jeopardizes performance for the team. And this is, as you can imagine, really important in conjunctive tasks. So in those cases, if you're thinking of working with that person in the office who is always late, who is always the last person to hand in their part, that can really affect your performance depending on the kind of work you do. So maybe counter to this idea of, well, if you have one person low on conscientiousness, it's going to harm your performance. There is some evidence for traits that if you have more of them, it's just better for the team. And one of those is agreeableness. So the notion of why agreeableness and maximizing agreeableness, having the most of it in your team as you can from everyone in the team, is that ideally it leads to people communicating and leading to greater cohesion for the team, ultimately improving their performance. But hold on, what about something like groupthink where you've got all these agreeable people in a group who are just kind of nodding their heads and not challenging any ideas. And I, I think that's the interesting bit of this research. And that's that we always think about, well, you need someone to play devil's advocate. The research suggests that this is not the case and it's counter to that idea because ultimately what ends up happening is that if you have someone who is really not agreeable on the team, it can harm team performance because they're likely to tamp down ideas. They're likely to stop other people from dissenting. Whereas if everybody is agreeable on the team, what, what ends up happening is we communicate better. We're just more likely to engage in dialogue based on the disposition that we're all agreeable people. We all want to get along. And ultimately that foments performance. It leads us to coming up with more ideas and sharing ideas in a way that's kind of safe and enjoyable for everybody. That makes sense. And I think it kind of helps bring out the distinction between mm -hmm. two different kinds of conflict, right? Um, you've got task conflict in teams where people are disagreeing about the best way to do something. And then you've got relationship conflict 
which is more of a interpersonal disagreement, like actually really not getting along with someone in the group. Kind of what we were talking about at the very start of this episode, right? So if you have highly agreeable individuals, are you saying that you could still have a good amount of task conflict, a good amount of healthy disagreement about the way to do the work? Yeah, ideally what's happen- what happens is because we're going to communicate them and we all feel safe communicating with each other because we're all agreeable people, we can disagree. And that should lead to a result that is optimally better in terms of performance than if we kind of have a group of people with some levels of agreeableness that are really high and some levels that are really low. Interesting. There you have it, folks. High agreeableness leads to constructive disagreement. So before I forget, you also remind me of something else. There's some research, really recent research in 2013, um, that is looking at particularly that team conflict. And there's been this sort of recent trend in the literature that suggests that all conflict, not just interpersonal conflict can be bad for teams. And it's been kind of a a surprising finding and it runs counter to what we've seen before. And sort of these researchers, Bradley Lisa's research group, we're looking at that. Why might task conflict, which we usually think of as a good thing because we're disagreeing on how to do the task rather than kind of in conflict with each other as people, why might that lead to poorer performance? And they decided to look at personality. And they decided particularly to look at two traits in personality that I think might make sense once I explain them. And that's openness to experience and emotional stability or neuroticism. What they found is that openness to experience and emotional stability impact the relationship between task conflict and team performance. So that if your team is really open to experience and we're all generally emotionally stable people, task conflict and team performance are positively related to each other. So that means that in those cases, the more task conflict you have can actually lead to team performance. However, if the team is low on openness to experience and low on emotional stability, task conflict and team performance are negatively related to each other. Does that make sense? So what you're saying is if you have a group full of people who are emotionally stable and are open to new ideas, then task conflict is a positive thing? Yeah. Once I thought about it, it it did make a lot of sense because the idea and the way that they explain it is people who are open-minded and emotionally stable are more likely to take that conflict and leverage it in a way that's positive. They're less likely to take it and internalize it if you're someone who's really neurotic and really low on emotional stability. And they're more open to, to other people's ideas as being something that's worth listening to and worth uh, as maybe as a source of contribution to the team. Right. So maybe this is a good time to talk about if some personalities are actually better than others. Because right now we've been talking about these certain traits and how some are better for certain situations than others. But when it comes down to something like neuroticism, is there ever a time when neuroticism is a good thing? I got to say, I haven't thought about it a lot. Uh, but the little that I have is I can't think of a situation where you wouldn't want someone to be emotionally stable. I can think of emotional stability as being a negative thing if people are not reactive in the sense that they just don't care about things. But the way it's operationalized, the way it's defined is that emotional stability is more of a form of resilience. It's they're not shaken by negative events. They kind of keep things together. So yeah, I can't think of a time when neuroticism is actually really a good thing. And I think maybe if we go back and do a quick review of all of the traits, they almost sound like they're all generally pretty good. 
This actually reminds me of some research I read recently on what's called the general factor of personality. So there's research showing that all of these five personality traits actually positively correlate or relate to one another. So what that means is that if you have someone who is more emotionally stable, they're actually more likely to be more conscientious, more extroverted, more open to experiences and so on. So you can actually smush all of these different personality traits into a single factor called the general factor personality. And what they found is that this general factor of personality is related to positive things like emotional intelligence, a term that we've all heard about. And we'll probably have another episode on that another day. But essentially, this kind of raises the, the question of whether there are good personalities and bad personalities. So if someone is higher in terms of the general factor of personality, does that mean that they're better across the board in every situation? And thinking about it, I think there are some situations where certain amounts of traits are better than others. So there is research on what makes a good manager, showing that people who have the most career success as managers are more likely to be extroverted and conscientious, which fits with uh, our notion of good versus bad personalities. But then when it comes to agreeableness, it's been found that good managers actually have a more moderate level of agreeableness. That would kind of suggest that they're more willing to deal with conflict. Uh, maybe they're not so preoccupied with people liking them. And sometimes you have to make very difficult decisions as a manager. So in order to progress and succeed in certain environments, you have to make those tough decisions. And a highly agreeable person might not be able to do that. Now, this is not homework, but it might be worth your time finding out a little bit more about your own personality. Research in personality is really advanced and it's there's a lot of scientific evidence for a lot of the measures out there. So we recommend that maybe for the next episode, because we're going to do this as well and we'll take the chance to discuss it, go to our show notes and click on the link for the Hexaco. The Hexaco is a measure of personality that assesses the big five, so the OCEAN acronym, but also includes a trait called honesty humility. It's a model of personality that's really taken hold in the scientific field. And we think it's a useful way to think of personality. So take that and then maybe come back next episode and we'll discuss exactly what all those results mean. Finding more about your personality is pretty easy to do. And taking a test like this is a great way to start because it asks the right questions that really tap into these core traits. You can also ask other people about how they see you and they'll describe your personality in their own terms and how they define personality. Um, they might focus on things like how outgoing you are or how agreeable you are, but they might miss certain aspects too, like neuroticism or emotional stability. So taking this test is a really good way to get a complete picture of who you are as an individual. When you look at these items, it's going to be really easy to want to answer the test in a way that's going to get you the results you want. Resist that temptation. Make sure you answer each, each question on its own, as you would actually feel about it, was it a situation you were in? It's going to really help the test give you a true picture of what you're like, what your tendencies are like. This doesn't mean that you can't change them. This doesn't mean that you can't act other ways, but it's an interesting exercise in self-reflection. That is a really good point. The first step to really evaluate who you are is to be brutally honest. And some of the items in personality tests are really quite attractive. Like, I'm the life of the party. 
it's easy to say, yes, I'm the life of the party if you want to be. But if you're not, in order to get a really accurate read on who you are as a person, it's important to be brutally honest with yourself, as uncomfortable as that may be. So we'd love to hear about your results and what you think about them next time. In the meantime, you can send us a tweet at mindyourwork.io or visit our website at mindyourwork.io. I'm Jose. I'm Nicholas. And we'll see you soon. I honestly had something great to say and I lost it. Uh, it's gone forever now. It's gone. It's totally gone. Oh man. <laughs> Mine is just a fickle thing. Okay. Let me uh let me snap in here again.